0: Good morning, church. It is so wonderful to be with you. My name is Dean Barham. If you are just visiting with us, I am new myself. So, welcome. Howdy. Come join us. Dive in. Uh, I I want you to know I I said that first week are here, but I'm going to say this uh, uh, often for any visitors that are here. Come, you are welcome. Here is a group of broken, imperfect people. We don't have it all together but we really do believe there is a man who does. We really do believe that Jesus came not to give us a religion, but a life that makes all the difference in the world. And that's literally what we're trying to do. We started a series last week we call CrossFit. Uh, Not not just looking at what does it mean to to forge elite fitness if you're there with that company. We wanna ask God, would would you forge in us an elite life, a life that matters, that makes a difference not just now, but for eternity. And so we started last week just kind of looking at the big picture that Jesus, isn't it wonderful? Jesus starts as a student. He starts as one who learns and he models for us how to learn a whole new way of life. And we'll get into his training program here starting this week. So let's just dive in and look at the scripture we're going to look at today. It's a, it's a chunk here in, in Mark chapter 8. I'll skip a little bit in the middle, but Mark chapter 8, verse 1. This is the gospel of our Lord. During those days, another large crowd gathered. And since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way. Because some of them have come a long distance. His disciple answered, but where in this remote place... Can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground, and when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well, and he gave thanks for them also, and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples pick up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went on to the region of Dalmanutha. Skip down to verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they discussed this one with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the... Five loaves for 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Seven, they replied. He said to them, do you still not understand? This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I remember uh, I hadn't been the campus minister at a certain school in Lubbock um, for very long, and I, I decided I wanted to make a connection with our college students. I just want to kind of feel the vibe of what they felt. I've done plenty of school, but I thought I'm gonna take a class on Tech's campus. I'm just gonna go sit in a class, audit a class there, and. Um, now understand. I didn't choose to do what some of you guys are doing. I, somebody came up and they're doing like agricultural genetics or something. I'm like, okay, uh, that's not. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing differential equations. I signed up for a film class <laughs> where, where they study how to to tell the story on the screen. It was it was. It was wonderful, actually. And they talked about um, how the the screenwriters will adapt things and put it on the screen and everything from establishing shots and all that. They tell how to tell a story. And part of what we got to do, how cool is this to read and homework, was to watch movies. (laughs) And so we watched contemporary things. And then, of course, a central part of the class was to watch classic movies that were, you know, ranked as some of the best of all time. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. hope you... You know, doesn't offend you, but I, I, the number one consistently on a list or top five is this movie called Citizen Kane, and I'm just being honest with you. I don't get it. I, I don't get it. It's long, it's slow, unbelievably depressing. I'm am sorry if it's your favorite movie. I apologize, but I it just couldn't get it. But there were some in the classic repertoire that I really liked. I mean, they talked about studying one of the early romantic comedies, and it was this film right here. Breakfast at Tiffany's. I thought, maybe I'll enjoy this one, because back in the day, there was a song, and the song was pretty cool. I like to play it on the guitar, so let's just try this out. And it was good. This movie was actually good. And part of what it does, it tells the story of a woman named Holly, who's a kind of social butterfly in downtown New York, and the the deepest she goes in her kind of character at the beginning of the movie and through much of the movie, her, her great goal in life is just to marry Rich. That's what she's trying to do. He's just trying to marry somebody that's rich. Now here's the thing we, we learned again, you know this from other stories too, but we learned in the film class. Here's the thing that drives a plot is conflict. And there's a, one of two ways, there's others, but there's a couple of ways that this can happen. Uh, The main character can either have a noble goal and there are obstacles to get to that goal that they have to overcome, or in this case, the obstacle is the goal itself. It's not a great goal, so they have to overcome that by getting a different goal. And so enter the conflict in the story. What's her goal? Marry rich, shallow, superficial, that doesn't matter, but all of a sudden, she can't help but to start falling in love with this struggling, poor writer named Paul. Some of you that are around and watch TV in the 80s, he was... Hannibal from the (laughs) 18th and so she's she's in the show she's doing this and and it's important to get this one of the central characters in the story is a cat and the cat serves as a symbol for who she is in her relationships she refuses to name the animal she calls it cat (laughs) And even though it's essentially hers and she kind of takes care of it, she consistently says, it's not mine because I don't want to belong to anything or anyone and I don't want anything belonging to me. So I'm going to show you a clip here that's at the end of the movie and just pay attention to what she does with the cat because what she's doing with the cat is what she does with people. And it's kind of symbolic what's going on in the story. And then there's the interaction there with Paul and pay close attention to what he says. By the way, this is pretty much the end of the movie. It had, spoiler alert, but it was out 60 years ago. So, you know, deal with it. So here we go. Stop the cab. What do you think? This ought to be the right kind of place, but tough guy like you, garbage cans, rats galore. Scram. I said take off. Beat it. Let's go. Driver. Pull over here. You know what's wrong with you, miss, whoever you are? You're chicken. You've got no guts. You're afraid to stick out your chin and say, okay, life's a fact. People do fall in love. People do belong to each other because that's the only chance anybody's got for real happiness. You call yourself a free spirit, a wild thing, and you're terrified somebody's gonna stick you in a cage. Well, baby, you're already in that cage. You built it yourself. And it's not bounded in the west by Tulip, Texas, or on the east by Somaliland. It's wherever you go. Because no matter where you run, you just end up running into yourself. Here, I've been carrying this thing around for months. I don't want it anymore. Writing. <laughs> no, I won't steal the ending. You go watch the movie. It is Hollywood, so things have to end well. But what a great line there! People do belong to each other. In fact, that's the only thing that makes life and happiness possible. But she struggles with that, and we feel it, don't we? And this is sixty years ago, so I, I thought maybe I'll consult some young theologians to help us think about this problem. So group of young theologians called White Reaper. Maybe some of you have heard of these guys. Some of my uh, former students, I were texting together this week, and one of my students introduced me to this band. I already downloaded some cool stuff in here. This is, uh, album came out in 2019. Hit it pretty big. And uh, it's called You Deserve Love. And a lot of the songs in it are wrestling with the complexity of human relationships. And this is the one that I like that fits right in with, with the image we heard 60 years ago. It's a song called Saturday. And he's wrestling with making a connection, stepping out and actually connecting to other human beings. Watch this, the first line there. Thank you so much for calling me, but my hand's already trembling. What does that say about us as human beings? We want to connect. People will reach out and make a connection. But hold on, we're scared to do that too. So in, in, in one part of the song, they're afraid to, to start making the connection when they do actually show up. Look at this line. I'm just trying to arrive in such a manner so as to not look alone. And he goes on to say, but I am. So, so either we want to avoid making connections or when we do, we don't really show up as who we really are. Whether it's a 60 year old film or or the songs of today, both of these are speaking to something deep in the human struggle. I call it the proximity problem. All right, not the physical one. You don't want to sit next to the world's strongest man on an airplane. That's a physical proximity problem. I'm talking deeper than that. Here's. We all know this to be true. Can we just put it out there? And film and art and music tells us all the time, reminds us, here's the reality. If you let people into your life, they may hurt you. If you actually let your guard down and care a little bit and and care for other people a little bit, they might hurt you. If you, I don't know, come to a church and do more than just kind of sing and pray and do all that. If you actually engage, you might get hurt here. the proximity problem. Here's the thing. What do you do about the proximity problem? You know, people have been wrestling that for, with, with for, uh, that issue for a long, long time. In fact, one of the classic answers, literally, classical Greece has a whole philosophy called stoicism. Do you know what stoicism basically says? Just don't care. Don't let it, anybody in too closely. Why? They won't hurt you if you don't care. If you don't put yourself out there at all. And let's be honest. Sometimes church people are great Stoics. What do we say when we come and interact with each other a lot on a Sunday morning? Hi, how are you doing? What do we say? Please talk back to me. What do we say? I'm fine. And we put on a plastic smile and we have our Sunday best on. Nothing, nothing bad about dressing up or whatever, but we are really good at hiding in religious communities who we really are, showing up. As someone that doesn't feel alone or lost or messed up in whatever the case may be. We're really good religious people at being Stoics. So when I come to Jesus and I'm looking at how Jesus practices and trains for living his life, I want to ask you, Jesus, what do you do with the proximity problem? And we come to this text. What does Jesus do? He dives right into it, doesn't he? I mean, look at this great story in the book of Mark. He dives right into the middle of the crowd. He's in the middle of the people. I love this image of it. Rembrandt did an etching of Jesus healing and teaching the crowds. Don't you just get a sense that in this image, it's exactly what we just read in the book of Mark. I mean, you got people, like, wheeled in to come and connect to Jesus. Other people are laying down at his feet. Other people are grabbing and, and just bunching around him. Jesus is right in the middle of the proximity problem you can think about it more complexly than this but let's just think about it in a couple of different ways there are different levels of engagement almost as Jesus is interacting with people first he engages the crowd doesn't he? he's engaging them here how does he do it I love it in verse 4 it says I have compassion on them Jesus says I have compassion on them Every now and then, again, I told you I got good Bible software. I don't just kind of read it off the page, but the Greek word just just pops. The word for this is Splunk Isn't that good? This is kind of fun. You can press your friend. Say it after me Splunk Oh, right. Just go impress your friends with that one. Listen, the word itself sounds like it means splunknizoma. Here's the thing. The word is talking about the inner parts. I'm going to gross you out a little bit. The inner parts of sacrifices they would make back then. Like the inside of stuff. What is it saying? Jesus looked at the crowd and his insides were affected by what they were going through or what they might go through. In other words, this is what Jesus did. He let people get close enough to him that he felt their pain. And it was in a complete sense of the word. He he taught them and he pastored them and all of that. But he also cared about their physical needs too. They'd been with him for three days. He said, I don't want them to starve spiritually, but I don't want them to starve physically either. He felt their pain. He engaged the crowd. But what I like best about this story and Mark's telling of this story, we also know Jesus did his greatest work not engaging the crowd, but by connecting deeply to a core, especially of 12 people. I mean, he gave himself deeply to 12 people. And you see in this story, going back and forth again and again, Jesus engaging 12 people deeply. Here's a way to think about it. It's it's almost like Jesus' ministry is both linear and circular. What do I mean by that linear? I mean, he was focused on getting to the cross and the empty tomb. But all along the way, he surrounded people and he surrounded himself with people. Here's a way to think about it. Training programs have different elements to them, do they not? So if you're training physically, you're going to do different things. And so part of the physical training program will be nutrition. You eat differently. Part of it will be strength training. You build up the muscles of your body. Part of it will be cardio. You build up your breath, right? All of those things. What we're doing now, Jesus, the student, last week, now we're looking at the different elements of Jesus' training. Can we just say very simply, a core element of the training of Jesus for life is friendship. He was shaped By the friendships in his life. Even even the crowds, this kind of interaction. But also deeply by those he chose to get in his inner circle. It wasn't just, hear me, that he was blessing them. He was shaped by the people he let into a friendship relationship. My favorite thing about Mark's telling of the story... Luke has a different theological agenda. So when he's talking about the disciples, he will often kind of mute a little bit certain things. But Mark just lays it out there. You see in Mark the pain and frustration of proximity with Jesus. What do I mean? Jesus pours himself into these people and they just don't get it. (laughs) They're clueless. It's a picture to me of the book of Mark. They're sawing off the limb and they're sitting on it. I mean, Watch what he tells you in the story. Here's here's an example. Let's look at the story itself and then let's look around the story. What does it say? Jesus says, all right, there's a lot of people here. And he says, you feed them. And what does it say in verse 4? What do they ask? Where can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Now, by the way, if you're new to the Bible, great. Just just be on the ride with Mark as if he's telling it for the first time. Some of you have read some of this before, and you saw what he says at the end. Can anybody tell me why this is an insane question to ask? Where can we get enough bread for this many people? Why is it crazy? Somebody tell me. Why is it crazy? He just did it. (laughs) Right? So we got 4,000 people here. Seven loaves of bread, at least three fish, a few is more than two, right? So here's what, not only did he just do it, it was harder the first time. I mean, did you watch the numbers? I think Luke I and mean, Mark is having fun with us here. Do, do you see the numbers? Like before it was 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Now there's 4,000 people with more bread and fish. Now both are impossible, but at least it's a little easier, <laughs> Where are we going to get the bread? By the way, before we pick on the disciples, have you ever had a time in your life where God showed up and what you were scared most about, what you were overcome most about, He took care of? And literally, this has happened to me in the last month. Then you find yourself back in it again, and all of a sudden you're saying, God, what are you going to do with this? How are we going to get through this one? You ever been through a difficult time in the church? God's delivered you in the past, the past hundred years, and then all of a sudden, how are we going to deal with this? How easy it is to forget. And that's what happens. They're asking this crazy question. Why I read the whole context. I love this, right? If you're not laughing by the end of the text, you're not reading it. So Jesus does all this stuff. They come like like with a potluck full of leftovers, and, and then he gets in a boat, and then he does what good teachers try to do is he gives some visual illustration as he's doing it. And he says, now, look, you know, the teaching is like yeast. So beware of the yeast. of." And what did they ask? We don't have any bread. Oh, no, he's going to be mad. We don't have any bread. <laughs> and Jesus said, do you see there's like a litany of questions? Do you not understand? <laughs> and then he's like any good parent, right? He says, now, 5,000 people, how many? How, many, how, many bre- how much bread do you have? Five, how, how much left over, you know, 12 baskets, like how many, 4,000, how many, seven, how much left over, seven, and I love it, verse 21. This is how the whole episode ends, mic drop. Do you still not understand? <laughs> I need this picture of Jesus. Like we talked last time, Jesus is fully God, and yet he emptied himself of the privileges of divinity. I thank God that he's frustrated. <laughs> do you ever get frustrated with people? He's frustrated with the disciples in this story. By the way, it's not just in the story. Here's a great way to study the Bible. Like read a story and then read right before it and after it and see if there's like a theme going on. So in chapter 7, verse 18, here's a great line from Jesus. He's teaching and they're not getting it. He says, are you still so dull? Like Jesus literally said, you are not the sharpest tool in the shed. He just said it to them. Now he's not being mean. He's calling them up and he's challenging them. By the way, very important part of the book of Mark is about to start. In chapter eight through 10, three times, it's framed around what are called the passion predictions, meaning Jesus says, I'm gonna die. Three times, he says it very clearly, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna give my life for the world. And listen to me, three times, every time he does it, the disciples epically fail to understand. Great, great moment, right, Jesus comes in, I'm going to die. I'm going to give my life. And Peter says, oh, no, you're not. And he, quote, took him aside and rebuked Jesus. (laughs) Epic fail. (laughs) Second time he does it, he goes and he says, I'm giving my life for the broken and the needy and the helpless. And then all of a sudden, children come flocking around Jesus and the disciples say, get away. You're not important enough. Epic fail. (laughs) And then the third time, Jesus is saying, I'm going to give my life. I'm going to die. Why? Because God's picture of power is surrender, not exploitation. And then James and John come up with an ambitious mother behind them and say, we want the right and left hand places of power in your kingdom. Epic fail. (laughs) It is no coincidence that the very next story after this one, is the story of a man that is so blind, Jesus has to heal him twice. I'll talk about that story some of the time. Jesus understands the frustration and the struggle of, hear me, what feels like failure. Now, Jesus doesn't fail, but do you understand? Jesus didn't always get people to do what he wanted them to do. and He poured his life into people and it didn't always work. And I don't know about you, but that's powerfully good news for me. It's important to me to see a picture of Jesus frustrated a little bit. Jesus knows what it feels like to pour your life into someone or to something only to feel the deep disappointment of it not working out the way you intended. He knows what that feels like. And let's be honest, because it is hard, don't we sometimes go the way of music and movies, sometimes, let's be honest, we want to say, it's better not to even try it all. Don't name the cat. Don't try to belong to anybody. Don't step into a new relationship or a connection. Or if you do, don't come real whatever you do. We want to say, mm, better not to do it at all because relationships, when they're real, are hard. Remember the First time, one of the first times I ever came to Texas. Came on a mission trip with college students to go to Impact Houston, Church of Christ. Some of you have probably been there, have heard about it. Powerful inner city ministry there. At the time we went, it just felt right. I mean, now they've got really nice facilities. When we went there, uh, they were meeting in a condemned, abandoned old school building downtown. But my favorite part of the experience, favorite, not the right word, the most real part of the experience for me. Uh, several of went in different places different ways and one of the ministers there took me to, to spend some time with a mother in their church. We're sitting in her living room, she's telling the story about how she had to lock the door on her 20 something year old daughter because she was so addicted to drugs she kept stealing, kept stealing, kept stealing from the family and they had small children in the house so she had to lock her own daughter out. And she talked about the pain of the day when her daughter came high, desperate, beating on her mother's door, and her mom had to sit on the couch and not open it. If you let people in your life, it will hurt sometimes, and it might be really, really hard. Jesus understands the pain and the frustration and the disappointment of human relationships, so why bother Why does he bother? I believe Jesus models something for us in this story. Here's the thing. There are certain things in life you just can't learn in theory. Right? Jumping out of an airplane. You're not going to learn how to jump out of an airplane on YouTube. You're not going to have the experience of it watching a video. I I remember um, in between undergraduate and law school, I had a year off. My wife was graduating in her last year. And I call them my redneck years. Now, I say that with affection. All, all, my, all my family are just, you know, tough. Their hands are as tough as their spirit, um, old rednecks in Virginia. So I say that lovingly. And I thought, okay, I'm, I'm gonna be a lawyer, I thought at that time. I said, I wanna I want do some jobs I'll, I'll never do. And so I did a bunch of different things. And one of the things on the side, though, I wanted to learn how to work on cars. I'm just confessing, my dad died when I was 10. I didn't, I didn't know how to do anything with that. So here, this is how I learned, this is me. So I thought, okay, I went and bought books. So I bought auto repair for dummies, kid you not. I bought, you know, one one of the auto manuals, just in general, one for my car. And I'm not lying, I read it cover to cover. I studied it. So if somebody talked to me, I could explain an ignition system. I could explain the electrical system. I could talk about all of that kind of stuff. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to try something. Now, what would be a smart thing to start out with if you're going to like, try to work on something? Maybe change your oil? I tried to bleed the brakes. Replace the brakes, breathe the brakes. But, uh, it, it was my, our car was on blocks for over two months <laughs> until one of my roommates who actually knew what he was doing sat down with me and we got our hands dirty and we worked on a car. Now, I know this is like revolutionary information, but let me just share with you. You don't learn how to work on a car sitting in a recliner reading a book. Just so you know. (laughs) Now listen to me. You don't learn how to live a life that matters and to know a God of this universe alone. I say it again? You don't learn this in theory. You don't, this is the best book that's ever been given to human race. You don't learn how to live just reading a book. You can't. Do it alone. Now hear me, there's another side of the story we're gonna talk about this week and next week are really paired, not just in the series, but paired together. But we don't learn the nature of God himself alone in what we're doing. Here's the thing, Jesus, now listen, I, I just quick kind of theological note here. Jesus didn't have to become human to understand what it's like to be a human being. Can we just say that? A lot of times we say, oh, isn't it great that Jesus became human, now he knows what it feels. God made us. There is nothing God does not know. Jesus didn't come as a human being for God. He came for us. That being said, Jesus models that you can only experience certain things. And here's the beautiful thing about committing to these relationships. Jesus showed us the beauty of committing to long-term, authentic, real relationships. Yeah, it's really frustrating in a moment like this with the disciples. But to let's at least say this. Peter at least got the answer right in the next chapter. You're the Christ. Other people didn't get that. And Peter failed and he went up and down. But I want you to, for a moment, picture this. There was a day when Peter is the guy who gets to preach of tens of thousands of people on Pentecost. Can you imagine the throne room of heaven in that moment? Can you imagine the son who has now been exalted uh, to be at the right hand of the father and the Holy Spirit dancing in the midst of all of that who has just sent out the fire of God's gifting on this guy and they're watching him when he's preaching and 3,000 people give their lives to a way of life that makes all the difference in the world. Don't you think in that moment everything that Jesus went through in the frustration here was worth it? That's, I think, part of what it means when it says in Hebrews, for the joy set before him. He endured not just the cross, he endured people. (laughs) Because there would be a moment like this. And it's that picture, I just want to leave you with this and this. Here's the sense, it's so much deeper than that. It's not just about this is important for us to do. It is God's very nature. It is in God's very nature to be in proximity. We don't worship a singular individual God. We worship the God who is Trinity. That means, hear me, for all of eternity, God has never been alone. You hear me say, say this a lot. A lot of times people say God created the world because he's a big bundle of love and he needed something to love. That's sweet and heresy. <laughs> he didn't need you or me. God had the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in dynamic, powerful, perfect. Self-giving relationship for all of eternity. We cannot be who we were created to be alone because even the God of the universe is not. That's why you can't stay off your phone sometime, maybe even right now. (laughs) That's why you got to message somebody or text somebody or you call somebody or you... I am, mean, whatever, you, we've got to connect to people. That's why I, I've been here two weeks and my phone keeps dying because I shop with my wife and she's not here. By the way, H-E-B is the best grocery store in the history of the world. And when I, <laughs> and I go there and I'm talking to my wife the whole time. Last night, I'm buying stuff. She said, you're just putting off doing the PowerPoint. Yes, I am. And, and I'm buying stuff and, and my phone is dying. Why? Because I'm longing to connect. By the way, that's why college students who've given up on God, will weep because war is about to break out in the Ukraine. That's why students that don't have anything to do with church will be turned up. It's their their needs of mine. They're, they'll be turned upside down because of trafficking that's going on in Africa. Because in those moments when we reach out to connect, we're stepping into the very nature of the God of the universe. Do you know I love, I love Christian history? It's so deep and rich. You know, they, this was so rich, they had to make up a word. Did you know that? John of Damascene. here's a great guy. And he made up a word called perichoresis. I'm giving you a bunch of Greek here, but perichoresis. Peri around. Choresis, we get choreography from. To move or to dance around. That's his picture of the Trinity. Don't you just take it in? What was God doing for all of eternity? He was dancing around Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here's the thing, if you are going to be who you were created to be, if you're going to live a life that you were designed to live, you must enter the dance too. Here's the thing, I invite you just to take one step one step closer in some connection to somebody else. By the way, that doesn't mean you have to have 20,000 friends or 200 friends. doesn't even mean you've got to get to know somebody really deeply right this moment. Just take one step closer. It might be praying for somebody. It might be talking to somebody after this and being a little bit more than, Hi, how are you? Fine. It might, I don't know what it is. Take one step. Why? It may save your life. I experienced that this week. I told you, just honestly, I told you... I when I first came here, I was a mess, and I was a mess a lot of different ways. One of them is physical. I've literally been battling. I, I get, you can tell I get a little intense sometimes, and I, get, I can get intense on myself and creating pressure and all this kind of stuff. Literally, my blood pressure has been popping all over the place, just telling you. And so I got two doctors, not just one. One of them's here already just helping me out, and I got some good medication. But I'm telling you, on Tuesday, God changed everything. He applied the message before I preached it. Tuesday, everything changed. Now, I've been on new medication one day, but it's not the medication that doesn't work that fast. Uh, Kelly doesn't even know this, but I got the opportunity to go with Kelly and Bob Davidson to see and meet some of our oldest members of our church. Here's the thing he didn't know. Before we got in the car, we had it scheduled. Before we got in the car, my blood pressure shot. I mean, it was over 160 or something like that. And um, I almost bailed. I sit in my office. And here's what I thought. God, I know this is me. I know this isn't... I got all the physical stuff covered. I know it's just me. Like, just... All the stuff accumulated. And I prayed in my office. I'm like, God, this is why I'm here. I'm just going gonna, gonna to trust you that if I actually just show up, the way you've asked me to show up, you're going to take care of things. I'm telling you, I'm not making so I'm sitting in Amadel's living room. Amadel Bacchus, 97-year-old icon of the faith of this church, sitting there talking with her. And it was like God said something. I could feel it in the moment. I could feel peace hitting me. And part of it was, I'm talking to this woman, 97 years of faith. She's been through some health issues a little more difficult than mine, right? I mean, who gets kicked out of hospice for living? That's what happened with am <laughs> So I'm just thinking, and, and I didn't hear an audible voice, but I'm telling you, I felt like God was saying, son, this is why you're here, to belong to people like this. And I could feel it. And I got to spend time with Bob Walker and hearing his stories and a man that God has used to build two universities. And I'm telling you guys, when we walked, when I walked out of the room, he said something over me that is a blessing that I called my wife and I shared it with her. And then Joe and Glow Hayes, oh, Glow lives up to her name, doesn't she? And I think about that passage where it says, David says, my cup overflows. It's like the life of God overflows into them. Listen, I have data to show that showing up in proximity with people can change your life. I got home, my blood pressure was 30 points lower. Just by being around the people of God. That's just my testimony of this. I'm just saying, what would it look like this year if you say, oh, Jesus, would you train me to take one step closer? Some of you have been around a long time and you've been doing this. You say, I don't need anybody in my life. Well, who needs you in theirs? Who needs you to take one step closer? Because here's the thing. Film was right a long time ago. To belong to somebody is the only way to have real peace and joy and happiness in this life. Thank you, Jesus, for modeling it for us. You don't just show up when it's easy. You don't show up when everybody looks great and sounds great. You step right into the middle of the difficulty and pain and joy of real human relationships. Let that continue to be an even more defining characteristic of this church. To the glory of your name we pray. Amen.